bad again. And then, you know, Solomon comes and that falls apart. And then King David comes, he loves God, but then he makes mistakes. And the whole movie is like this, this epic going back and forth. And the reason why I've entitled the sermon this morning, Jesus and all that Old Testament stuff, is because what I hope to do in the next, hopefully 20 minutes, is give you an image And to not just tell you that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, but to literally show you exactly how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And what we need to know this morning is that the Old Testament is ultimately fulfilled. Everything that God does in the first four, three to four-fifths of the Bible is accomplished by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The Old Testament is fulfilled and resolved by the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and his resurrection. And the main idea this morning is that Jesus is God's loving fulfillment of the Old Testament. The, the New Testament, or the Old Testament reveals kind of what's going on, and the New Testament, I believe, ultimately resolves the Old. Turn with me to Matthew 5 right now. We're going to pick up right where we've been. And Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. And before we read this, what we always forget, right? I mean, we always forget this. Jesus is not a middle-class white guy, okay? He's not a middle-class black guy or Hispanic guy. Jesus is a first-century Jewish man born into a first-century Jewish world. And we know that Jesus has begun this, this invasion of the kingdom, but we can't miss the Jewishness of Jesus because if we don't understand the question that Jesus answers, his answer won't really make much sense to us. And as we go through this whole sermon, I don't want this to be like something we're just looking at the Bible and studying. I want this to become real for you. And so as we're talking about the Old Testament and Jesus fulfilling the covenant and everything that God was doing, I want you to realize that the Old Testament is our story too. The Old Testament is your story and my story before the fulfillment of Christ. And so what we're going to read this morning in Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20 is Jesus answering his Jewish friends and the Jewish people all around him in a Jewish way how he plays into the Old Testament, into the law, into the prophets, and so on. Because they think he's come to do a completely brand new thing and abolish everything that God has already done. But now Jesus is going to answer us in this question this morning. So stand with me as we stand in the reading of the honor of God's word. We'll be up here on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Hear the words of the Lord. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless this word. You may be seated.
So I desire to show you, right, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Because um, if you're like me, when, when you were growing up, and maybe you're still there now, when you look at the Old Testament, we view it as just like, kind of like a little precursor to Jesus, right? And we say things like it points to Jesus, which it does, and we say things, it kind of sets the stage, which it does, but I honestly believe it's more holistic, and it's more, it's more full than that. See, the first thing that Jesus tells us is that his life was fulfillment of the perfection that the law Required. He says that, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So God's people were in rebellion against God. They were sinners just like me and you. And contrary to what most people tell you in the world today, the laws that God gives us, the commands that you and I are to live by, are given for our good. God gives us love, for, or gives us commands for the same reason a parent gives their child instructions because they know their child is weak and they know that as their child is growing up and maturing that they need things and guidelines and commandments to keep them from going astray, to keep them from harm. And so we see in Exodus 20 in the Old Testament, uh, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments that they're to live by. And then uh, the rest of the, 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 or the next five books of the Bible are all those laws being worked out. So when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, what he would have been referring to is the first five books of the Bible that the Jewish world viewed as the Torah. And the Torah was called the law. And so essentially, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, all of which are in our Bible today, were given by God to the people. They were reading them just like we read them today. And those were the ways in which they were supposed to live their lives. And that was given that they would come close to God through being like God and through not harming themselves through things like sin and disobedience. The law was given to God's people that they would be a holy light in the world. And the prophets would come along and they would testify back to the law, but also forward to Jesus. They would say, be holy, but also God is coming to fix everything. He's going to be the sacrifice. And then Jesus shows up. And they're like, you seem very different. And the reason why Jesus seemed so different from the law was not because he was abolishing it but because he was fulfilling it in a way that it had never been done before. You see, the law requires us to be perfect. You have two options when it comes to spending eternity in heaven. You can try and do it based upon your own works or God's works, and the choice is yours. But the problem is you have to be perfect, and if you're like me, you're not. And I think a phenomenal way of explaining how we're not perfect is New Year's resolutions, right? Like, raise your hand. Half of y'all, y'all probably already failed, right? Raise your hand if you said New Year's resolution and you already failed it. I did. Yeah? Yeah? Most people? Okay, where are the people that you, you set one and you kept it? You still got 11 months, so you're in trouble. You still got 11 months to go, so it, it's, it's, it's going to get harder, trust me. I'm trying to encourage you, but I'm, but I'm really not. New Year's resolutions are a phenomenal example that even when you want to do something, you still can't do it. It's a phenomenal example that even something that you want to do, that you know is good for yourself, that you know is beneficial, that you know God wants for you, even if you know it in your heart, you believe it, and you try as hard as you can, you still can't do it. You still fall short. 
And that was the problem with the law. They would want it, they would try, but they'd fall away, they'd be imperfect. But here's the problem. Even when we fail, God is still perfect. Even when we're unholy, He is still holy. And He is so good. And He maintains His holiness so well that He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so how could He be in the presence of sinful people when He is holy and perfect and just and merciful? And the answer is Jesus. That when Jesus, is, Jesus comes down, that his life is the perfection that we needed but were completely unable to do. Paul talks so much about this. He says in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus lives the perfect life and then says, I've done it, now here, take it from me. The perfection the law required was fulfilled by the perfect life of Jesus. And when we have faith in him, we then enter into this perfection. It says uh, in Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God's people rebelled. God gave them a law so they would obey it, they'd be like him, they'd come close to him. But then they failed. But then God still loved them and God still wanted them. He still wants us. When you were in your sin, God loved you and wanted you. He wanted you to be perfect even though you were unable to be perfect. And so what he did was he sent himself in the form and the man of Jesus and through the person and work of Christ, he lived a perfect life. That's why it's important that he's sinless. Lives a perfect life that you couldn't live that you could then have his righteousness through faith, as Paul says. The perfect life of Jesus is God's resolution to our imperfection. Thus, when Jesus comes, he's not abolishing the law. The law required perfection. He's fulfilling the law because he is perfect. His perfect life fulfills the law's demands and requirements. And then he offers it to you. The second thing is this. And this is so beautiful. This is so amazing. And then after he lives his perfect, sinless life, the climax of the story of Jesus is the death on the cross. Like, God literally died on a cross and forever changed the world. This really happened. It's not just a story. It's not just an illustration. It's not just symbolism. He literally was put up on a cross and murdered for your sin. It's not an allegory. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a fictional story. It really happened. And I think when we don't feel conviction for our sin, it's often because we've forgotten the bloodiness of the cross. We forgot what it took for God to take care of that sin that we struggle with. The cross was an act of love, but it was not just simply an act of love. It was an act of atonement for our sin. 
that literally on the cross, Jesus is dying. And the thing about the law is that the law requires you to be perfect. And if you were imperfect based upon the Old Testament standards and the whole three-four-fifths of the beginning of the Bible— is when you made a mistake, you had to atone for it. And that's not a foreign concept to us. Our world works the exact same way today. If you murder somebody in our culture, you go to jail. You steal something, you're in trouble. If you do something bad, you pay the price. That is a completely logical and rational idea that even we hold in our secular culture. And it's the same thing with sin. When we make mistakes, when we fall short, we have to pay for that penalty. But here's the problem. An imperfect person then becomes an imperfect sacrifice. They would sacrifice animals, and there were specifications for how it would be done. You'd find the, the perfect thing or animal you had, your most prized possession, you would sacrifice on the altar to show that you were in your heart truly sorry for your sin. And so we couldn't live a perfect life, and now we owe a debt that we can't pay. Have you ever owed a debt that you couldn't pay? It's one of the most crippling feelings in the world. And yet God so loved the world that he sends Jesus to not just be the fulfillment for the perfect life we couldn't live, but to also at the same time pay off our debt of sin on the cross for you and for me, received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death was the fulfillment of the sacrifice that the law required. And this is the coolest part. And we forget this one, I think. Jesus' resurrection was the fulfillment of God's kingdom. Jesus' resurrection, after he was uh, killed on the cross and buried, was the fulfillment of God's kingdom. I enjoyed uh, studying about this this week. I'll be honest, this was a kind of a tougher sermon to prepare for. The next few weeks will be a little more topical. Um, But this was so big picture, there was so much to grasp. But... Um, even as I was reading through this, I think we don't, we don't correlate oftentimes enough the, the resurrection of Jesus with the Old Testament and really what that meant. And what the resurrection means essentially is new life. What the resurrection means is, is dead things coming to life. Like when you first became, were a Christian, when you first entered in his grace, you were dead in your sins, but then you were made new in Christ. And, and the Old Testament... What God was doing through the Torah, through the first five books of the Bible and the prophets, was he was trying to mold humanity. But he wasn't just simply trying to get them out of the pit. He was trying to get them out of the pit of sin that they would actually finally fulfill the purpose that he created them for. You see, when God created the world, it was good and it was perfect. And he set us aside for a purpose. Your life has a, has a purpose and a meaning. And yet, once we're right with God, once our sins are atoned for, once we have his righteousness, like, we're just getting started. And now it's time to make disciples. Now it's time to glorify him, to worship him, to live a life that that honors him, that he would receive joy out of our obedience to him. And, And the resurrection literally was the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the sense that God's kingdom was finally coming. Like this was the beginning of God's solution to everything. There is there is new life from a barren ground, life has sprung up. And it's amazing. I love that song. How marvelous. Like, how marvelous that something new and life comes from something that was dead and barren. You see this example in the Old Testament when, when Abraham's wife gives birth after she's barren. It's like life coming from something of which it seemed that life could not come from. 
And this love of Jesus, this resurrection, this new life should not excuse our sin but empower us to change. And this is the main problem because this is not a popular idea in the world today. We live in a culture that says that love equals tolerance, which makes no sense because they're different words. And so like if they were the same thing, they wouldn't have different words, right? Words have meaning, and so the fact that they are different words means that they're completely different topics. And we have so devalued love that to love somebody is just to tolerate them. When I, when I was a kid, that was a bad thing, right? Like, tolerating somebody was bad. Like, if you tolerated somebody, that meant you really didn't like them. Yet now it's like, if I tolerate you, I must really love and accept you. And we live in a world that says that love is tolerance, yet the message of Jesus was love leads to change. And one of the toughest things that we struggle in the church with is trying to love people but also say, like, y- you're new. Like, that's what frustrated Paul so much in the New Testament. He was like, he was like you don't need to keep doing that stuff because, like, you're saved, you're new. You were once dead in those sins, and now you, you should be changing. The love of Jesus is not an excuse to sin. It's, it's, it's new life. It's an excuse to change. And, and we always forget the resurrection being the fulfillment of the Old Testament because the, they were supposed to now leave those ways of the past behind and begin growing in the image of Jesus and sanctification. Love means you're made new. The people who love you the most are oftentimes the people who aggravate you the most because they'll tell you the truth when nobody else will. And they'd rather you be better off than you like them. And every person in this room, I don't want anyone to feel singled out here because we're all in this, right? We've all got things that we struggle with. We've all got things that we hide. And yet the resurrection of Jesus gives us a brand new life. When Jesus rose from the grave, it was finally fulfillment of what God originally began in the Old Testament. That's how the resurrection is the fulfillment, ultimately, of the Old Testament. I heard a really cool story. There was a a pastor friend of mine who planted a church up in Dallas, and uh, they were reaching a lot of new believers, and they, um, uh, there was this new couple that came to the church uh, that was dating, and by his estimation, like, it was like the most attractive couple he had ever seen in his life. Like, she was like, drop-dead gorgeous, and he was extremely handsome, and they got saved, and God was doing a work in their life, and about a few weeks in, um, he was meeting with them in his office, and um, it turns out the guy, you know, wanted Jesus, but then kind of kept living in his same lifestyle. He was, he was, you know, sleeping with his girlfriend, all that kind of stuff. Didn't want to commit, but wanted all that kind of stuff. And, and he brings his friend, this guy, into his office, and he says, hey, man, I love you, but I've kind of heard this stuff is going on. Like, like what's the deal? And he said, uh, are, are you still living in this sin? And he says, um, yeah, I mean, look at her, right? I mean, how can I not, you know? And, and he's kind of like joking about it. And the guy all of a sudden, he's like, I love you, man, but um, I just have one question for you. And the guy's like, what? He says, have you recanted your faith yet? And the guy's like, no, man, I, I love Jesus, right? I, I just kind of struggle, and it's just kind of what I deal with, and I, I love him, you know, but, you know, I, I can't really give this up. And he says, man, that I, I love you, but I can't, um, I can't walk with you anymore, because there's two types of people I can walk with. He goes, if you recant your faith and you're not a believer and I'm trying to share God's love with you and you don't really get it yet, that's fine. Or if you're a believer and you're like actually trying to live the right way and you're struggling to live in this new life, if you're trying to live in God's plan for life, that's another thing. But he goes, if you just don't care, then I can't do anything for you. 
Guy walked away kind of angry, felt judged, felt manipulated and frustrated. Didn't see the guy for three weeks. True story. Three weeks later, the guy shows up at his office. He goes, I need to talk to you. Sits the pastor down, starts talking to him, and he goes, "Um, I want you to know that I want Jesus. He goes, I realized my girlfriend wasn't really walking with the Lord. I feel bad about what I was doing. I dumped her. I want to follow Jesus. I realized I was in the wrong. I just needed someone to tell me how it was. And that guy this day is now a church planner as well in Dallas and is seeing fruit in his ministry through and through. And I say all that to, to, to bring it to me like this. The Old Testament is the story of God's people who keep getting it wrong. And when Jesus comes and gives you his perfection and gives you his sacrifice and raises from the dead after three days, we are now entering into a new life, into God's original intention back in the very beginning of Genesis. We're not supposed to be hanging out in Deuteronomy or 1 Kings. See, the Old Testament of your life, your story is before you met Jesus, I was this way, but since I met Christ, now I'm this way. It's new life. It's resurrection. It's God's fulfillment in your life. And I'll close with this idea. The Old Testament is our story too. And Jesus is our Savior too. The same way that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God did in the Old Testament, Jesus today, right now, in this room, is also fulfillment of everything in your life, of everything you want, every core desire, every, everything from the success you want to the, to the worldly things that you want, everything that you want can ultimately be found in Jesus Christ And if you look anywhere outside of the living water, you'll always be looking and wandering. And this is why Jesus says, when you come to me, I'll give you rest because you don't have to look anymore. The Old Testament is not a foreign part of Scripture that we don't know much about. The Old Testament is us when we don't walk with God. Jesus offers everything about his life to you today. Every single one of you, if you will receive it. He offers his perfect life to be your perfect life. He offers his atoning death to be your atoning death. That you can be made right with God today. That you can enter into the resurrection, into a new life. As we close today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Because after hearing this, after hearing the Old Testament, you know, we always say that coming close to, or holiness is really just coming close to God. It's not about rules. It's about knowing God. It's about being close to him and intimate with him in a relationship. And so having heard this message today, we're going to close a little bit differently. And what we're going to do is I'm going to give everyone here 30 seconds of silence. And I want you to have an experience this morning that it rings true to what everything we've talked about. And so we're going to have 30 seconds of silence, and I want you to think in your heart. I want you to think of the things, the sins, the things you've struggled with that you want to confess right where you're at to yourself. I want you to think of those things by yourself, in your head. And then I want to read a prayer 
of confession and pardon. And what this is, is this is a very historic prayer in the church that has been read throughout the centuries over people to remind them that God has taken their sin and they are forgiven and that we now want to change. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sit right where we're at. We're going to confess our sin. I know this is weird, but it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's very impactful. I'm going to read this prayer over you after we take those 30 seconds. And then what we're going to do is we're going to stand together. We're going to come to the table and we're going to receive the symbol of God's love and forgiveness in our life. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I want this to come after you have said, look, I've given these things up and I'm realizing that God has really fulfilled my sin and he's resurrected me to new life. And as you're walking, I literally want you to feel like you're coming close to God at the table. That you're walking to him after you had walked away, that you're walking back to him, coming to the table. That you would tangibly feel his grace this morning because God loves you and wants you to walk with him. So let's bow our heads at this time for 30 seconds and then I want to read this prayer over you with your head bowed still. Let's confess our sin from this week. With your head bowed still, let me read this over you, this prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought not to have done, and we have done those things which we should not have done, and there is nothing good in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore those who are repentant. According to your promises declared unto men in Christ Jesus our Lord, Grant that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of his name. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry. They are too real to hide, and they are too deep to undo. Forgive, please, what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire in our souls. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more and more and more and more in your likeness and image. 
through Jesus Christ, the light of the world, forever and ever. Amen. At this time, let's stand. Let's come to the table and then respond through singing.